everybody. This is Kush. I am here with a solo sode for everybody who likes solo sodes. It's another inebriated past. And tonight, after much consultation with the Twitter fans about what would be a good follow-up to my August Willich episode, the resounding answer was, talk about the sewer socialists of Milwaukee. Why wouldn't I? I am a Wisconsinite by birth and by uh, habit, and as such, I have a deep affinity, a visceral affinity for the sewer socialists from Milwaukee from the turn of the 20th century. And so I say to you, yes, let's talk about the sewer socialists, especially since we are now in an era post-absolute boy conquering in the UK where genuine left-wingers can ask themselves, what would socialist management mean in the core capitalist countries of which most of us uh, are residents. So I don't think there's a better uh, cautionary tale and inspiration than the sewer socialists who govern Milwaukee in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. Uh, and I feel like talking about them is going to elucidate a lot of issues about power and about how it's wielded by those who seek to radically transform the status quo, but who also have made the concession to uh, seek electoral remedies. And that's what we're talking about here. Just as we see Jeremy Corbyn, the absolute boy, triumph in England, uh, the question is, well, what does that mean? Uh, how can a electoral power work against capitalists, capitalism's worst uh, manifestations without being co-opted by capitalism? And the answer to that, I think, can at least partially be found by looking at the sewer socialists. So let's start in the late 19th century. Uh, the last, I, I, after the Civil War, you saw a, a solid 30-year uh, period in America where capital and labor fought to a degree that is basically unmatched in any other Western country. There's no other country that you can point to that had a bloodier labor history than late Victorian America. We're talking about uh, the Homestead Strike. We're talking about the Pullman Strike. We're talking about the Ludlow Massacre. We're talking about the swelling of agricultural socialism that came to form the Populist Party, which was so popular in the Western United States that the Democrats essentially absorbed their entire platform when Eugene V. Debs ran for president uh, uh, in 1896 and in 1900. So out of this cauldron, basically, of, of, of socialist agitation, we see a number of divergent ideas about how to advance the working class in America. The most conservative of which is Samuel Gomper's American Federation of Labor, which saw the goal of the labor movement as organizing around trades, around skilled workers who had specific abilities that could not be filled by any random person off the street, and as such could leverage those abilities to get a living wage and the ability to uh, sustain themselves and their families based on their wages from work. That's sort of the most right-wing 
component of the of the labor movement. But at the same time, you saw a huge explosion in electoral socialism. People who were inspired by the socialist parties of the emergent working class in Europe at the same time. The thing to remember about Europe is that in the late 1800s, you were seeing the emergence simultaneously of a self-conscious working class and a universal manhood suffrage. And the leader, the leading uh, proponent of that would be the Social Democratic Party of Germany, which took uh, Karl Marx's analysis and compiled it into a theory of power revolved around electoral success. Basically, the people who took the baton from Marx in Germany said, look, we have the numbers. Uh, uh, laborers are the majority or will certainly soon be the majority of German people. And as such, we should just cultivate their political participation till the point where they can essentially vote socialism in. And a lot of Americans took that to heart. And in the late 1800s, you saw an explosion of socialist parties who warred over the questions of tactics and strategy. Uh, the most sort of doctrinaire Marxist would be uh, Daniel DeLeon, who was the head of the Social Democratic Labor Party and who constantly sort of pushed away more pragmatic socialist comrades in the pursuit of a sort of a purely Marxist uh, agenda of stagist reform leading to revolution. But all of this argument sort of came to naught because, and then, as I said, on the end of that spectrum, you had direct actionists and anarchists, the people who were hanged at Haymarket in 1888, people who said that accommodating capitalism is a fool's errand. It will end only in co-optation and defeat for your goals. You can only win by destroying capitalism. And that is where you saw the birth of the genuine conflict that would flower in the 20th century. But the important thing to note is that in 1901, all of these disparate strands of American socialism came together in the formation of the Socialist Party of America, the first comprehensive, all-inclusive Socialist Party America ever saw. And this party had deep uh, influence and resonance in huge swaths of the country. A lot of the Agricultural workers who had flocked to the populist party in the late 19th century and then saw the populist party essentially dissolve when its platform was absorbed by the Democrats and its candidate, William Jennings Bryan, was absorbed by the Democrats. It gave them something to move forward to as they saw the Democrats fail to live up to the promise of that uh, emulsion. And then, more importantly, in urban areas across the United States, immigrant communities embraced the Socialist Party because they were coming from parts of the world, specifically Europe, where Socialist Parties were the norm. 
and where socialism was not a dirty word, it was not anti-American or whatever that meant in the old country. And as such, they were super uh, accepting to the idea. And so we saw a, a flowering of socialism in the urban centers that were dominated by European immigrants. A good example of the trajectory we're talking about is that Eugene Debs, who was the leading light and presidential candidate of the early Socialist Party, made his national name during the Pullman strike of the 19th century, uh, in which railroad workers struck against the Pullman company for uh, reduction in wages and, and layoffs. And he was imprisoned at one point for his actions as a railroad union executive. And while in prison, he read up on socialist theory and came out of prison a committed socialist. So that by the time the Socialist Party was formed in 1901, he was there and ready to uh, lend his name to it once that moment came. So the date, the year that can kind of be, there was a lot of, conflict and argument in that early socialist party over mostly over tactics about whether uh, one should adhere to a purely electoral line or whether one should fight more in for industrial sabotage and direct action and the sort of anarchist inflected stuff that would later uh, be personified by the industrial workers of the world or whether and that, that argument persisted. And another argument was about questions about uh, immigration and race and gender. And these are all questions that threatened to splinter the early solidarity of the, the Socialist Party. But the year that saw the first big breakthrough for socialist electoral politics in America was 1910. 1910 is the year that in the city of Milwaukee, the mayor, Emil Seidler, was a socialist. The One of the members of the House of Representatives, Victor Berger, was a socialist. And the majority of the city council was socialist. And that is the year that you saw, for the first and only time in American history a preponderance of socialist politicians in a specific municipality. Socialists were elected across the country as mayors, as legislators, both uh, statewide and municipally. There was a socialist member of Congress from New York. But only in Milwaukee was the entirety of municipal and federal government under the control of socialism. The main reason for this is that socialism was not a dirty word to the German immigrants who made up the majority of the Milwaukee population. There was a big outward bursting of reform energy throughout the country, but it differed depending on the ethnic uh, upbringing of the person having it. For example, Milwaukee was, or Wisconsin was also the home to the 
progressive movement of Robert La Follette, which was a uh, splinter movement from the Republican Party of, TR, of Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt, but more aggressively committed to the ideas of nationalized uh, resources and nationalized infrastructure, more hostility to concentrated wealth. But progressivism more appealed to middle-class Yankees, people of long American extraction. Socialism, with a big S, was much more appealing to people who had recently come from Europe. And as such, Emil Seidler, the first socialist mayor of Milwaukee, was son of the German immigrants. Victor Berger, who uh, in 1910 was elected as a member of the House from Milwaukee, was an Austrian Jewish immigrant. These are the people who formed the sort of basis of the, of the catalyst for socialism in Milwaukee specifically, because the immigrants who made up the population of Milwaukee were in some ways sort of inoculated against the flag-waving jingoism that mitigated against socialist awareness in other parts of the country. So these people, who were elected in 1910, form the basis of what would later become known as the sewer socialists, called that because they did not occupy themselves with questions of revolution and overthrowing capitalism so much as the narrow questions of administering a municipality in the most rational and effective way possible. It was a non-utopian socialism. It was, it was pitched to people basically as common sense. You have gutters overflowing with garbage in your city? Socialize that shit. Why should you have to pay a person to come and take the garbage away from the front of your house when we could all collectively pay and then someone who we had collectively hired would come every fucking week and take the same garbage away. Why deal with sewers that backed up and, and, and got clogged and sent, gar sent shit everywhere when you could socialize the sewers, have everyone pay into a common pot, and then have that money go towards sanitation? That was basically the pitch of the sewer socialist. It was, we have all these problems created by urbanization because there is no overarching planning dealing with them. They go undealt with. People have to basic, people are left to their own wits to make these decisions and to, um, and to solve these problems. How much easier would it be if we were to come together and pool resources to solve these problems in such a way that it wasn't up to the individual citizen to fix them, we could all agree to put into a common pot and have the result of that being the rational elimination of things like waste, uh, the uh, public bus system that allowed infrastructure and travel, why don't we do that? So that that is the thing about the sewer socialists, is that they were pragmatic beyond all. They did not speak of grand concepts of a post-capitalist world. They said, 
You've got garbage in your gutters. You've got overflowing sewers. We can help you with that. And that is what led to their electoral success. But, and this is the most important point, it also limited them in very significant ways and made it difficult for them to put forward a vision for society that went beyond uh, relatively quotidian questions of municipal administration. For example, the first socialist mayor of Milwaukee was, as I said earlier, uh, Emil Seidel. He was elected in 1910. He defeated a Democrat and a Republican in a three-way race. Then in 2012, he ran again for re-election, and the Democrats and Republicans agreed to run one candidate against him, which, parenthetically, is a huge uh, tip-off to potential left-wing challengers to the status quo, is that party means nothing. Ideology means everything. It, the Democrats and Republicans instinctively understood that they had more in common with each other than either of them did with the, Demo the socialists, and as such, they were fine with finding one candidate to run against Seidel, and he was defeated in 1912. So as I said, Emil uh, Seidel lost real, his re-election bid in 1912 because the Democrats and the Republicans came together to run one candidate against him who defeated him. But socialist administration in Milwaukee was restored in 1916 with the election of Dan Hohen, H-O-A-N, who became the longest-serving mayor, the longest-serving socialist mayor in American history. He uh, served from 1916 until 1940. And this looks like a socialist success story, right? Look at this. This guy ruled for over 20 years. It's amazing. He socialized things like housing. The first public housing in America was initiated under Hohen's administration in Milwaukee. Uh, municipal sewage. Uh, municipal water purification. A municipal quarry. And, most importantly, the elimination of the sort of urban corruption that was associated with the Democratic and Republican machines that preceded socialist power. That's an underspoken of element of socialism's rise in Milwaukee is that in urban areas before the turn of the century, administration of vital municipal activities was basically divvied up by political machines people who had connections to private powers that were outside of government and who were basically bribed into supplying individual uh, purveyors uh, with access to a public fund or another. Socialists, one of the big appeals of them was that they were not connected to any of these pre-existing uh, patronage organizations. And as such, they could run on uh, purity and on uh, anti-corruption, and Hohen absolutely did. And he was elected in 1916, as I said, and he ruled all the way until 1940. And as I said, looks like a amazing story of socialist conquest, except for the fact 
that in 1917, the United States entered World War I. And socialists in America were confronted with the exact same issue that socialists in Europe were confronted with in 1914. What do we do about our claimed adherence to working class internationalism? At the time of the beginning of World War I, there was something called the Second International. It was the inheritor of Marx's first international working men's association. And it was made up of socialist parties from across Europe and the United States, all of whom adhered to the idea that class loyalty was far more important than national loyalty, that the average working man or woman had way more in common with working men and women of other countries than either of them did with the ruling class of their own country, and that they would not fight against one another in any kind of imperialist-driven war. But then Franz Ferdinand got gotten Sarajevo in the summer of 1914, and all of it went to the wayside. Basically, every socialist party in Europe threw away their internationalism and voted to join the war effort of their respective countries. And this is basically the death knell of international socialism in the early 20th century. What emerged after the end of the war was basically a zombie animated by the corpse of the quasi-socialist uh, Russian uh, CCCP. But the, any kind of hope of an international socialist movement opposed to empire and opposed to capital was destroyed in 1914 when every socialist party across Europe decided to endorse the war effort. The exception to that was the American Socialist Party that we spoke of, led by Eugene Debs. They said unequivocally that war is not the answer. And Victor Berger, who had been elected to Congress in Milwaukee in 1910, was arrested and imprisoned for his opposition to the war. This is a man who, in many respects, was sort of a nightmare of accommodation, a man who had said that the way to socialism in America uh, for, foreclosed direct action, foreclosed any kind of genuine uh, workforce militancy, which is why he was one of the people who in 1912 pushed out Big Bill Haywood and the IWW sympathetic members of the Socialist Party and kick them out of their central committee, uh, a man who endorsed the racial stereotypes of the day and the racial animus of the day, saying that, that socialism was a way to build white workers' power, uh, uh, hostility to foreign-born workers, and also to uh, black workers coming to the North from American South. But when it came down to the question of should the America... American Socialist Party endorse war in Europe, he was steadfast in saying no, as was Eugene Debs, but not part of that was Dan Hohen, mayor of Milwaukee, who endorsed the war effort and, in fact, oversaw a municipal bond-buying activity. Uh, so... 
the price, essentially, of Hohen's continued stewardship of the city of Milwaukee was his abandonment of socialist internationalism. Meanwhile, Victor Berger was arrested under the Espionage Act, as was Eugene Debs. And in 1920, Berger was basically kicked out of Congress due to his opposition to the war and the fact that he had been convicted by a, in a court of the Espionage Act. And the people of Milwaukee voted him back in in 1920, and the seat was vacated by rule of the U.S. House of Representatives. They said, we will not accept anybody from Milwaukee if they have been convicted of a crime, and Victor Berger had been convicted of the crime of opposing the war. And a Republican took the office in 1920, 22. Uh, Eugene Debs was similarly imprisoned at the same time for his opposition to the war. And the speech he gave before being sentenced still is famous among socialists as sort of a, 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 a cri de corps. And I, even though it's parenthetical to the issue we're talking about, I just want to quote it because of how powerful it is. He says, quote, Your Honor... Years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest of earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it, and while there is a criminal element, I am of it, and while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. So... He got thrown in jail by Woodrow Wilson, as did Victor Berger. After the war, uh, both Berger and Debs's sentences were vacated. Uh, Debs by presidential fiat, Berger by Supreme Court decision. And Berger took his seat back in 1924, after it was held for a brief two years by a Republican. And so in the 20s, you saw Berger in power in Washington and Hohen in power in Milwaukee proper as mayor. And they worked together to turn Milwaukee into sort of a laboratory of socialism where they, they, pup they made public many elements of uh, administration that at the time were thought to be the province of private industry, but which now we look back on and we think, well, of course, those should be municipal. Things like sewage, of course, that should be owned by the municipality. Uh, that was pioneered by the sewer socialists of Milwaukee. Uh, while Berger was in office, he, pr he promoted things that we take for granted as liberal ideas, but at the time were considered to be radical. Uh, things like an old age pension. Victor Berger introduced the first bill to give old people a pension, which we would now think of as Social Security, in America. And I think what is important about that is that it shows that while libs love to talk about how every progress in American history is the product of of centrist liberal negotiation, in reality, if you actually look at the process by which progress has been made in America, 
at every point you have bleeding edge radicals, and in this case socialists, making a case that would otherwise be unspeakable. And then over time, that case being absorbed by sort of the center left as embodied by the Democratic Party. But without that agitation and without that effort, those things never would have happened. So every complacent lib who tells you that the eight-hour workday and child labor laws and Social Security are the product of good old-fashioned centrist democratic movements, we know for a fact that is not the case. In every case, they were pushed into the public conversation by radicals who were not afraid of that label, and that Democrats, the broad center left, only absorbed them later as a way to mollify the most obstreperous members of their left flank, of their party. And as such, the only reasonable conclusion to draw is that the Democrats are essentially a useless uh, pass-through organ that should be overtaken and consumed by a party that is committed to these ideas from the first and doesn't have to... uh, do some sort of horrible negotiation to decide that they're viable. But what the sewer socialists teach us is that such compromises to become viable in an electoral sphere are dangerous because what the sewer socialists ended up becoming after all this effort and after all this fighting was basically a municipal movement towards a rationalized public administration of infrastructure. The foreclosing of utopian horizon that was part and parcel of the sewer socialist vision that Victor Berger personally absolutely adhered to. Throughout the 20s, he fought at every instance to camp back revolutionary and radical currents within the Socialist Party, especially after the October Revolution of 1918, when you saw the breaking off from the Socialist Party of the Communist Labor Party and the Communist Party, who eventually came back together under uh, common turn aegis, but which were absolutely uh, fought at every turn by people like Berger, because they saw a reformist road, and they wanted to pursue the reformist road. But looking back at the achievements of the sewer socialists, we see the limitations more than anything. The accomplishments are without argument. The promotion of the idea of municipal control over local infrastructure, which has been fought back and forth over the 20th century, but which I believe is still considered to be a mainstream view that local municipalities should have control of local infrastructure. But by foregoing the revolutionary path, by accommodating oneself to electoral gains only, the sewer socialists essentially condemn themselves to obsolescence. The real story of that is that Emile Seidel, the first socialist mayor of Milwaukee who 
served from 1910 to 1912, came back to run for mayor again in 1948 against the socialist Frank Zeidler as a Democrat. Zeidler won and continued the tradition of socialist mayoralship in Milwaukee until 1960, from 1948 to 1960, uh, which is something that people steeped in the Red Scare would have a hard time imagining. Yes, it's true. An American city of significant population was governed by an admitted and proud socialist throughout the 1950s. But although Zeidler loudly proclaimed his allegiance to concepts of civil rights, the black diaspora movement towards Milwaukee throughout the 40s and 50s did not involve an integrated and enlightened population dispersal. Instead, the black population of Milwaukee was ghettoized into a very small section of the northern part of the city, even while the mayor of the city was a professed socialist and professed advocate for civil rights. And in fact, Zeidler's decision to not run for re-election in 1960 was largely dictated by his belief that he would not be able to argue in favor of a pro-civil rights administration in the face of white panic, essentially. And even though Milwaukee, Wisconsin, had the longest term of socialist administration of any American city in the 20th century, it now, at the dawn of the 21st century, has the highest levels of racial segregation in the country. So that, I think, is the real lesson of the sewer socialists. As much as we might find heart in their robust programs of municipal administration, their anti-corruption moves, their willingness to state unequivocally their desire to see a, a communal uh, administration of wealth, the city that they administered did not live up to that idea for the very same reasons that socialists were able to take power, which is that the accommodation required to take power fundamentally undermined the socialists' ability to govern in a genuinely radical way. So I would say to all of the people giddy with the amazing, miraculous success of, of Jeremy Corbyn in the recent snap election in Britain, to look at the history of the sewer socialists and to think about what it means in the 21st century for socialist administration to be both a viable, practical thing that appeals to people's bread and butter, dinner table desires, but that also holds out the hope and the mechanism for genuine revolutionary change. Because the sewer socialists at a certain point essentially accepted that the best that they could hope for was a 
incremental increase in public control over infrastructure and housing and things like that. But that the fundamental contradictions of American life were greater than anything that they could have conceived of and that they overwhelmed the sewer socialists' desire and efforts for change. Hope that made sense. This is Kush Bomb, signing off.